Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'll Be Waiting by Raymond Chandler At one o'clock in the morning, Carl the night porter turned down the last of three table lamps in the main lobby of the Windermere Hotel. The blue carpet darkened a shade or two, and the walls drew back into remoteness. The chairs filled with shadowy loungers, and in the corners were memories like cobwebs. Tony Resick yawned. He put his head on one side and listened to the frail, twittery music from the radio room, beyond a dim arch at the far side of the lobby. He frowned. That should be his radio room after 1 a.m. Nobody should be in it. That red-haired girl was spoiling his nights. The frown passed, and a miniature of a smile quirked at the corners of his lips. He sat relaxed, a short, pale, paunchy, middle-aged man with long, delicate fingers clasped on the elk's tooth on his watch chain. The long, delicate fingers of a sleight-of-hand artist. Fingers with shiny, molded nails and tapering first joints. Fingers a little spatulate at the ends. Handsome fingers. Tony Resick rubbed them together gently, and there was peace in his quiet, sea-gray eyes. The frown came back on his face. The music annoyed him. He got up with a curious litheness, all in one piece, without moving his clasped hands from the watch chain. At one moment, he was leaning back relaxed, and the next, he was standing balanced on his feet, perfectly still, so that the movement of rising seemed to be a thing imperfectly perceived, an error of vision. He walked with small, polished shoes delicately across the blue carpet and under the arch. The music was louder. It contained the hot, acid blare, the frenetic, jittering runs of a jam session. It was too loud. The red-haired girl sat there and stared silently at the fretted part of the big radio cabinet, as though she could see the band with its fixed professional grin and the sweat running down its back. She was curled up with her feet under her on a davenport which seemed to contain most of the cushions in the room. She was tucked among them carefully, like a corsage in the florist's tissue paper. She didn't turn her head. She leaned there, one hand in a small fist on her peach-colored knee. She was wearing lounging pajamas of heavy ribbed silk embroidered with black lotus buds. You like Benny Goodman, Miss Cressy? Tony Resick asked. The girl moved her eyes slowly. The light in the room was dim, but the violet of her eyes almost hurt. They were large, deep eyes without a trace of thought in them. Her face was classical and without expression. She said nothing. Tony smiled and moved his fingers at his sides, one by one, feeling them move. <clears throat> I said, you like Goodman, Miss Cressy? He repeated gently. Not to cry over, the girl said tonelessly. Tony rocked back on his heels and looked at her eyes. Large, deep, empty eyes. Or were they? He reached down and muted the radio. Don't get me wrong, the girl said. Goodman makes money, and a lad that makes legitimate money these days is a lad you have to respect. But this jitterbug music gives me the backdrop of a, a beer flat. I like a little something with roses in it. Maybe you like Mozart? Tony said. <laughs> Go on. Kid me, the girl said. Oh no, I wasn't kidding you, Miss Cressy. I think Mozart was the greatest man that ever lived, and Toscanini is his prophet. I thought you were just the house detective, 
She put her head back on a pillow and stared at him through her lashes. Go ahead. Make me some of that, Mozart, she added. It's too late, Tony sighed. You can't get it now. She gave him another long, lucid glance. You got the eye on me, haven't you, Flatfoot? She laughed a little, almost under her breath. <laughs> Tell me, what did I do wrong? Tony smiled his toy smile. <laughs> uh, nothing, Miss Cressy, nothing at all. But you need some fresh air. You've been five days in this hotel, and you haven't been outdoors. And you have a tower room. She laughed again. So make me a story about it. I'm bored. Well, there was a girl here once, and she had your suite. She stayed in the hotel a whole week, like you. Without going out at all, I mean. She didn't speak to anybody, hardly. What do you think she did then? The girl eyed him gravely. She jumped her bill. He put his long, delicate hand out and turned it slowly, fluttering the fingers with an effect almost like a lazy wave breaking. Mm -mm. She sent down for her bill and she paid it. Then she told the hop to be back in half an hour for her suitcases. Then she went out on her balcony. The girl leaned forward a little, her eyes still grave, one hand capping her peach-colored knee. What did you say your name was? I'm Tony Resick. Resick? Sounds European. Yeah, Tony said. Polish. Go on, Tony. All the tower suites have private balconies, Miss Cressy. The walls of them are way too low for 14 stories above the street. It was a dark night that night. High clouds. He dropped his hands with a final gesture. A farewell gesture. Nobody saw her jump. But when she hit, oh, it was like a big gun going off. You're making it up, Tony. Her voice was a clean, dry whisper of sound. He smiled his toy smile. His quiet, sea-gray eyes seemed almost to be smoothing the long waves of her hair. <sighs> Eve Cressy, he said musingly. A name waiting for lights to be in. No, waiting for a tall, dark guy that's no good, Tony. You wouldn't care why. I was married to him once. <laughs> I might be married to him again. You know, you can make a lot of mistakes in just one lifetime. The hand on her knee opened slowly until the fingers were strained back as far as they would go. Then they closed quickly and tightly, and even in that dim light, the knuckles shone like little polished bones. I played him a low trick once. I put him in a bad place without meaning to. You wouldn't care about that either. It's just that I owe him something. He leaned over softly and turned the knob on the radio. A waltz formed itself dimly on the warm air. A tinsel waltz, but a waltz. He turned the volume up. The music gushed from the loudspeaker in a swirl of shadowed melody. Since Vienna died, all waltzes are shadowed. The girl put her head on one side and hummed three or four bars and stopped with a sudden tightening of her mouth. Eve Cressy, she said. It was in lights once at a bum nightclub, a dive. They raided it. And then those lights went out. He smiled at her almost mockingly. I bet it was no dive while you were there, Miss Cressy. Oh, that's the waltz the orchestra always played when the old porter walked up and down in front of the hotel entrance, all swelled up with his medals on his chest. The Last Laugh, with Emil Jannings. I, I guess you wouldn't remember that movie, Miss Cressy. No, she said. I never saw it. He walked three steps away from her and turned. I gotta go upstairs and palm some doorknobs. I hope it didn't bother you, but you really ought to go to bed now. It's pretty late. The tinsel waltz stopped and a voice began to talk. The girl spoke through the voice. You really thought something like that? About the balcony? He nodded. I might have, but I don't anymore. No chance, Tony.
Her smile was a dim, lost leaf. Come and talk to me some more. Redheads don't jump, Tony. They hang on and wither. He looked at her gravely for a moment and then moved away over the carpet. The porter was standing in the archway that led to the main lobby. Tony hadn't looked that way yet, but he knew somebody was there. He always knew if anybody was close to him. He could hear the grass grow. The porter jerked his chin at him urgently. His broad face above the uniform collar looked sweaty and excited. Tony stepped up to him close and they went together through the arch and out to the middle of the dim lobby. Trouble? Tony asked wearily. There's this guy outside to see you, Tony. He won't come in. I'm doing a wipe off of the plate glass of the doors and he came right up beside me, this tall guy. Get Tony, he says, out of the side of his mouth. Tony said, uh-huh, and looked at the porter's pale blue eyes. Who was it? Al, he said to say he was. Tony's face became as expressionless as dough. Oh, okay. He started to move off. The porter caught his sleeve. Listen, Tony, you got any enemies? Tony laughed politely, his face still like dough. The porter held his sleeve tightly. Listen, Tony, there's a big black car down the block, the other way from the hacks. There's a guy standing beside it with his foot up on the running board. This guy that spoke to me, he wears a dark-colored wraparound overcoat with the high collar all turned up against his ears. His hat's way low. You can hardly see his face. He says, get Tony out of the side of his mouth. You ain't got any enemies, have you, Tony? Only the finance company, Tony said. All right, beat it. He walked slowly and a little stiffly across the blue carpet, up the three shallow steps to the entrance lobby with the three elevators on one side and the desk on the other. Only one elevator was working. Beside the open doors, his arms folded, the night operator stood silent in a neat blue uniform with silver facings, a lean, dark Mexican boy named Gomez, a new boy, breaking in on the night shift. The other side was the desk, rose marble, with the night clerk leaning on it delicately. A small, neat man with a wispy reddish mustache and cheeks so rosy they looked rouged. He stared at Tony and poked a nail at his mustache. Tony pointed a stiff index finger at him, folded the other three fingers tight to his palm, and flicked his thumb up and down on the stiff finger. The clerk touched the other side of his mustache and looked bored. Tony went on past the closed and darkened newsstand and the side entrance to the drugstore, out to the brass-bound plate glass doors. He stopped just inside them and took a deep, hard breath. He squared his shoulders, pushed the doors open, and stepped out into the cold, damp night air. The street was dark, silent. The rumble of traffic on Wilshire, two blocks away, had no body, no meaning. To the left, there were two taxis. Their drivers leaned against a fender, side by side, smoking. Tony walked the other way. The big, dark car was a third of the block from the hotel entrance. Its lights were dimmed, and it was only when he was almost up to it that he heard the gentle sound of its engine turning over. A tall, dark figure detached itself from the body of the car and strolled toward him, both hands in the pockets of the dark overcoat with the high collar. From the man's mouth, a cigarette tip glowed faintly, a rusty pearl. They stopped two feet from each other. The tall man said, Hey, Tony. Long time no see. Hello, Al. How's it going? Can't complain. The tall man started to take his right hand out of his overcoat pocket, then stopped and laughed quietly. <laughs> I forgot. I guess you don't want to shake hands. That don't mean anything, Tony said. Shaking hands. Monkeys can shake hands. What's on your mind, Al? <laughs> Still the funny little fat guy, eh, Tony? I guess. Tony winked his eyes tight. His throat felt tight. You like your job back there? It's a job. Al laughed his quiet laugh again. <laughs> uh, you take it slow, Tony. I'll take it fast. So, it's a job and you want to hold it. Okay. 
There's a girl named Eve Cressy who's flopping in your quiet hotel. Get her out. Fast. And, uh, right now. What's the trouble? Tony asked. The tall man looked up and down the street. A man behind in the car coughed lightly. She's hooked with the wrong number. Nothing against her personally, but she'll lead trouble to you. Get her out, Tony. You got maybe an hour. Sure, Tony said aimlessly, without meaning. Al took his hand out of his pocket and stretched it against Tony's chest. He gave him a light, lazy push. I wouldn't be telling you just for the hell of it, little fat brother. Get her out of there. Okay, Tony said, without any tone in his voice. The tall man took his hand back and reached for the car door. He opened it and started to slip in like a lean, black shadow. Then he stopped and said something to the men in the car and got out again. He came back to where Tony stood silent, his pale eyes catching a little dim light from the street. Listen, Tony, you always kept your nose clean. You're a good brother. Tony didn't speak. Al leaned toward him, a long, urgent shadow, the high collar almost touching his ears. It's, uh, it's trouble business, Tony. The boys won't like it, but I'm telling you just the same. This Eve Cressy, she was married to a guy named Johnny Rawls. Rawls just got out of San Quentin two, three days, maybe a week. He did a three-spot for manslaughter. The girl put him there. He ran down an old man one night when he was drunk and she was with him. He wouldn't stop. And she told him to go in and tell it or else. He didn't go in. So the Johns came for him. Tony said, that's too bad. It's kosher, kid. It's my business to know. This Rawls flapped his mouth in stir about how his girl would be waiting for him when he got out, all set to forgive and forget. And he was going straight to her. Tony said, so what's he to you? His voice had a dry, stiff crackle like thick paper. Al laughed. The trouble boys want to see him. He ran a table at a spot on the strip and figured out a scheme. He and this other guy took the house for 50 grand. The other one coughed up, but we still need Johnny's 25. The trouble boys don't get paid to forget. Tony looked up and down the dark street. One of the taxi drivers flicked a cigarette stub in a long arc over the top of one of the cabs. Tony watched it fall and spark on the pavement. He listened to the quiet sound of the big car's motor. I don't want any part of it, he said. I'll get her out. Al backed away from him, nodding. A wise kid. So uh, how's mom these days? She's okay, Tony said. Hey, tell her I was asking for her. You know, asking for her isn't anything, Tony said. Al turned quickly and got back into the car. The car curved lazily in the middle of the block and drifted back toward the corner. Its lights went up and sprayed on a wall. It turned the corner and was gone. The lingering smell of its exhaust drifted past Tony's nose. He turned and walked back to the hotel and into it. He went along to the radio room. The radio still muttered, but the girl was gone from the Davenport in front of it. The pressed cushions were hollowed out by her body. Tony reached down and touched them. He thought they were still warm. He turned the radio off and stood there, turning a thumb slowly in front of his body, his hand flat against his stomach. Then he went back through the lobby and toward the elevator bank and stood beside a Mayolika jar of white sand. The clerk fussed from behind a pebbled glass screen on one end of the desk. The air was dead. The elevator bank was dark, Tony looked at the indicator of the middle car and saw that it was at 14. <sighs> Gone to bed, he said under his breath. The door of the porter's room beside the elevators opened, and the night operator came out in his street clothes. He looked at Tony with a quiet, sideways look, out of eyes the color of dried-out chestnuts. Good night, boss. Yeah, Tony said absently. He took a thin, dappled cigar out of his vest pocket and smelled it. He examined it slowly, turning it around in his neat fingers. There was a small tear along the side, and he frowned at that and put the cigar away. There was a distant sound, and the hand on the indicator began to steal around the bronze dial. Light glittered up in the shaft, and the straight line of the car floor dissolved the darkness below. The car stopped, and the doors opened, and Carl the porter came out of it. 
His eyes caught Tony's with a kind of jump, and he walked over towards him, his head on one side, a thin shine along his pink upper lip. Oh, hey, listen, Tony. Tony took his arm in a hard, swift hand and turned him. He pushed him quickly, yet somehow casually, down the steps to the dim main lobby and steered him into a corner. He let go of the arm. His throat tightened again, for no reason that he could think of. Well, he said darkly, listen to what? The porter reached into a pocket and hauled out a dollar bill. He gave me this, he said loosely. His glittering eyes looked past Tony's shoulder at nothing. They winked rapidly. You, you know, for uh, ice uh, and uh, gi- ginger ale? Don't stall, Tony growled. The guy up in 14B, the porter said. Let me smell your breath. The porter leaned towards him obediently. Liquor. Tony said harshly. He gave me a drink. Tony looked down at the dollar bill. Nobody's in 14B. Not on my list, he said. Yeah, there is. The porter licked his lips and his eyes opened and shut several times. A tall, dark guy? All right, Tony said crossly. All right. So there's a tall, dark guy in 14B and he gave you a buck and a drink. Then what? There was a gun under his arm, Carl said and blinked. Tony smiled, but his eyes had taken on the lifeless glitter of thick ice. You take Miss Cressy up to her room? Carl shook his head. Gomez, I saw her go up. Get away from me, Tony said between his teeth. And don't accept any more drinks from the guests. He didn't move until Carl had gone back into his cubbyhole by the elevators and shut the door. Then he moved silently up the three steps and stood in front of the desk, looking at the veined rose marble, the onyx pen set, the fresh registration card in its leather frame. He lifted a hand and smacked it down hard on the marble. The clerk popped out from behind the glass screen like a chipmunk coming out of its hole. Tony took a small notebook out of his breast pocket and spread it on the desk. I don't see a 14B on this, he said in a bitter voice. The clerk wisped politely at his mustache. So sorry, you must have been out to supper when he checked in. Registered as James Watterson, San Diego. The clerk yawned. Did he ask for anybody? The clerk stopped in the middle of the yawn and looked at the top of Tony's head. Oh yes, he asked for a full swing band. Why? Wow, smart, fast, and funny, Tony said. If you like him that way. He wrote on his notebook and stuffed it back into his pocket. I'm going upstairs to palm some doorknobs. You know, there's four tower rooms up there that you ain't rented yet, so you better get up on your toes, son. You're slipping. I make out, the clerk drawled and completed his yawn. Hurry back, Pops. I don't know how I'll get through the time. You could shave that pink fuzz off your lip, Tony said, and went across to the elevators. He opened up a dark one, lit the dome light, and shot the car up to 14. He darkened it again, stepped out, and closed the doors. This lobby was smaller than any other, except the one immediately below it. It had a single blue-paneled door in each of the walls other than the elevator wall. On each door was a gold number and letter with a gold wreath around it. Tony walked over to 14A and put his ear to the panel. He heard nothing. Eve Cressy might be in bed asleep, or in the bathroom, or out on the balcony. Or she might be sitting there in the room, a few feet from the door, looking at the wall. Well, he wouldn't expect to be able to hear her sit and look at the wall. He went over to 14B and put his ear to that panel. This was different. There was sound in there. A man coughed. It sounded somehow like a solitary cough. There were no voices. Tony pressed the small mother-of-pearl button beside the door. Steps came without hurry. A thickened voice spoke through the panel. Tony made no answer, no sound. The thickened voice repeated the question. Lightly and maliciously, Tony pressed the bell again. Mr. James Watterson of San Diego should now open the door and give forth noise. He didn't. A silence fell beyond that door that was like the silence of a glacier.
Once more, Tony put his ear to the wood. Silence, utterly. He got out a master key on a chain and pushed it delicately into the lock of the door. He turned it, pushed the door inward three inches, and withdrew the key. Then he waited. All right, the voice said harshly. Come on in and get it. Tony pushed the door wide and stood there, framed against the light from the lobby. The man was tall, black-haired, angular, and white-faced. He held a gun. He held it as though he knew about guns. Step right in, he drawled. Tony went into the door and pushed it shut with his shoulder. He kept his hands a little out from his sides, the clever fingers curled and slack. He smiled his quiet little smile. Mr. Watterson? And after that, what? I'm the house detective here. <laughs> it slays me. The tall, white-faced, somehow handsome and somehow not handsome man backed slowly into the room. It was a large room with a low balcony around two sides of it. French doors opened out onto the little private open-air balcony that each of the tower rooms had. There was a great set for a log fire behind a paneled screen in front of a cheerful Davenport. A tall, misted glass stood on a hotel tray beside a deep, cozy chair. The man backed toward this and stood in front of it. The large, glistening gun drooped and pointed at the floor. It slays me, he said. I'm in this dump an hour, and the house copper already gives me the buzz. Okay, sweetheart, look in the closet in the bathroom. But uh, she just left. You didn't see her yet, Tony said. The man's bleached face filled with unexpected lines. His thickened voice edged towards a snarl. Yeah? Who didn't I see yet? A girl named Eve Cressy. The man swallowed. He put his gun down on the table beside the tray. He let himself down into the chair backwards, stiffly, like a man with a touch of lumbago. Then he leaned forward and put his hands on his kneecaps and smiled brightly between his teeth. So, she got here, huh? I didn't ask about her yet. I'm a careful guy, I didn't ask yet. She's been here five days, Tony said. Just waiting. For you. She hasn't left the hotel for a minute. The man's mouth worked a little. His smile had a knowing tilt to it. I got delayed a little up north, he said smoothly. You know how it is, visiting old friends. You seem to know a lot about my business, copper. That's right, Mr. Rawls. The man lunged to his feet and his hand snapped at the gun. He stood leaning over, holding it on the table, staring. Ugh, dames talk too much, he said with a muffled sound in his voice, as though he held something soft between his teeth and talked through it. Not dames, Mr. Rawls. What? The gun slithered on the hardwood of the table. Talk it up, copper. My mind reader just quit. Not dames. Guys. Guys with guns. The glacier's silence fell between them again. The man straightened his body slowly. His face was washed clean of expression, but his eyes were haunted. Tony leaned in front of him, a shortish, plump man with a quiet, pale, friendly face and eyes as simple as forest water. They never run out of gas, those boys, Johnny Rawls said and licked at his lip. Early and late they work. That old firm never sleeps. You know who they are? Tony said softly. I could maybe give nine guesses, and twelve of them would be right. <laughs> the trouble boys, Tony said, and he smiled a brittle smile. Where is she? Johnny Rawls asked harshly. Right next door to you. The man walked to the wall and left his gun lying on the table. He stood in front of the wall, studying it. He reached up and gripped the grillwork of the balcony railing. When he dropped his hand and turned, his face had lost some of its lines. His eyes had a quieter glint. He moved back to Tony and stood over him. I've got a steak, he said. Eve sent me some dough and I built it up with a touch I made up north. Emergency dough, what I mean. The trouble boys talk about 25 grand, he smiled crookedly. 
Maybe 500, I can count. And I'd have a lot of fun making them believe that. What did you do with it? Tony asked indifferently. I never had it. Leave that lay. I'm the only guy in the world that believes it. It was a little deal I got suckered on. I'll believe it, Tony said. You know, they don't kill often, but they can be awful tough. Mugs, Tony said, with a sudden bitter contempt. Guys with guns, just mugs. Johnny Rawls reached for his glass and drained it empty. The ice cubes tinkled softly as he put it down. He picked his gun up, danced it on his palm, then tucked it nose down into an inner breast pocket. He stared at the carpet. Why are you telling me this, copper? I thought maybe you'd give her a break. And if I wouldn't? I kind of think you will, Tony said. Johnny Rawls nodded quietly. Can I get out of here? You could take the service elevator down to the garage. You could rent a car. I can give you a card to the garage man. You're a funny little guy, Johnny Rawls said. Tony took out a worn ostrich skin billfold and scribbled on a printed card. Johnny Rawls read it and stood holding it, tapping it against a thumbnail. I could take her with me, he said, his eyes narrow. Yeah, you could take a ride in a basket too, Tony said. She's been up here for five days, I told you. She's been spotted. A guy I know, he called me up and told me to get her out of here. He told me what it was all about. So, I'm getting you out instead. They'll love that, Johnny Rawls said. They'll send you violets. I'll weep about it on my day off. Johnny Rawls turned his hand over and stared at the palm. I could still see her anyway, before I blow. Next door to here, you said? Tony turned on his heel and started for the door. He said over his shoulder, Don't waste a lot of time, handsome. I might change my mind. The man said, almost gently, You might be spotting me right now for all I know. Tony didn't turn his head. That's a chance you're going to have to take. He went on to the door and passed out of the room. He shut it carefully, silently, looked once at the door of 14A and got into his dark elevator. He rode it down to the linen room floor and got out to remove the basket that held the service elevator open at that floor. The door slid quietly shut. He held it so it made no noise. Down the corridor, light came from the open door of the housekeeper's office. Tony got back into his elevator and went on down to the lobby. The little clerk was out of sight behind his pebble glass screen, auditing accounts. Tony went through the main lobby and turned into the radio room. The radio was on again, soft. She was there, curled on the Davenport again. The speaker hummed to her, a vague sound so low that what it said was as wordless as the murmur of trees. She turned her head slowly and smiled at him. Finished palming doorknobs? I couldn't sleep worth a nickel, so I came back down again. Are you okay? He smiled and nodded. He sat down in a green chair and patted the plump brocade arms of it. Sure, Miss Cressy. Waiting's the hardest kind of work, isn't it? I wish you'd talk to that radio. It sounds like a pretzel being bent. Tony fiddled with it, got nothing he liked, and set it back where it had been. Beer parlor drunks are all the customers now. She smiled at him again. I don't bother you being here, Miss Cressy? I like it. You're a sweet little guy, Tony. He looked stiffly at the floor and a ripple touched his spine. He waited for it to go away. It went slowly. Then he sat back, relaxed again, his neat fingers clasped on his elk's tooth. He listened. Not to the radio, but to far-off, uncertain things. Menacing things. And perhaps to just the safe whir of wheels going away into a strange night. You know, nobody's all bad, he said out loud. The girl looked at him lazily. I've met two or three that I was wrong on then. He nodded and admitted judiciously. Yeah, I guess there's some that are. The girl yawned and her deep violet eyes half closed. She nestled back into the cushions. Sit there a while, Tony. Maybe I could nap. Sure, 
not a thing for me to do. Sometimes I don't know why they pay me. She slept quickly and with complete stillness like a child. Tony hardly breathed for ten minutes. He just watched her, his mouth a little open. There was a quiet fascination in his limpid eyes, as if he was looking at an altar. Then he stood up with infinite care and padded away under the arch to the entrance lobby and the desk. He stood at the desk listening for a little while. He heard a pen rustling out of sight. He went around the corner to the row of house phones and little glass cubby holes. He lifted one and asked the night operator for the garage. It rang three or four times, and then a boyish voice answered, Windermere Hotel, garage speaking. This is Tony Resick. That guy Watterson, I gave a card to. He leave? Sure, Tony. A half an hour almost. Is it your charge? Yeah, Tony said. My party. Hey, thanks. I'll be seeing you. He hung up and scratched his neck. He went back to the desk and slapped a hand on it. The clerk wafted himself around the screen with his greeter's smile in place. It dropped when he saw Tony. Can't a guy catch up on his work? He grumbled. What's the professional rate on 14B? The clerk stared morosely. There's no professional rate in the tower. Yeah, well, make one. The guy left already. He was only there an hour. Well, well, the clerk said airily. So, the personality didn't click tonight, hmm? We gotta skip out. Will five bucks satisfy you? A friend of yours? No. Just a drunk with delusions of grandeur and no dough. Guess we'll have to let it ride, Tony. How did he get out? I took him down the service elevator while you were asleep. So, will five bucks satisfy you or not? Why? The worn, ostrich-skin wallet came out and a weedy five slipped across the marble. All I could shake him for, Tony said loosely. The clerk took the five and looked puzzled. Well, you're the boss, he said and shrugged. The phone shrilled on the desk and he reached for it. He listened and then pushed it towards Tony. For you. Tony took the phone and cuddled it close to his chest. He put his mouth close to the transmitter. The voice was strange to him. It had a metallic sound. Its syllables were meticulously anonymous. Tony. Tony Resic. Talking. A message from Al. Shoot. Tony looked at the clerk. Hey, be a pal, huh? He said over the mouthpiece. The clerk flicked a narrow smile at him and went away. Shoot, Tony said into the phone. Tony held the phone very tight, and his temples chilled with the evaporation of moisture. Go on, he said. I guess there's more. Yeah, a little. The guy stopped the big one, cold. Al? Al said to tell you goodbye. Tony leaned hard against the desk. His mouth made a sound that was not speech. The metallic voice sounded impatient, a little bored. This guy had a rod. He used it. Your brother won't be phoning anybody anymore. Tony lurched at the phone, and the base of it shook on the rose marble. His mouth was a hard, dry knot. The voice said, That's as far as we go, bud. Good night. The phone clicked dryly, like a pebble hitting a wall. Tony put the phone down in its cradle very carefully so as not to make any sound. He looked at the clenched palm of his left hand. He took a handkerchief out and rubbed the palm softly and straightened the fingers out with his other hand. Then he wiped his forehead. The clerk came around the screen again and looked at him with glinting eyes. I'm off Friday. How about lending me that phone number? Tony nodded at the clerk and smiled a minute, frail smile. He put his handkerchief away and patted the pocket he had put it in. He turned and walked away from the desk, across the entrance lobby, down the three shallow steps, along the shadowy reaches of the main lobby, 
and so in through the arch to the radio room once more. He walked softly, like a man moving in a room where somebody is very sick. He reached the chair he had sat in before and lowered himself into it inch by inch. The girl slept on motionless, in that curled-up looseness achieved by some women and all cats. Her breath made no slightest sound against the vague murmur of the radio. Tony Resick leaned back in the chair and clasped his hands on his elk's tooth and quietly closed his eyes. So that was I'll Be Waiting by the legendary hard-boiled detective novelist Raymond Chandler. It was narrated for us by Brendan Sullivan, and I'll put some links to Brendan's works and how you can get in touch with him. Hopefully, if you want to hire him um, as a narrator, you can uh, you can get hold of him through the show notes. So, a fantastic piece of work. He did all the engineering, everything. I didn't do anything to that. So, all the mistakes came to me clean. It was a lovely, lovely piece of work, and I was very happy to use it. Um, I'll be waiting by Raymond Chandler. Let us say something about Raymond Chandler for those of you who are not aware of him. There may be somebody. So Raymond Chandler was born in 1888 and died in 1959. He was a British-American novelist and screenwriter renowned for his contributions to the hard-boiled detective fiction genre. Born on July 23, 1888 in Chicago, Illinois, uh, Chandler spent most of his formative years in England after his parents' uh, separation. Chandler's early career was diverse. He worked in the British Civil Service and later joined the Canadian Army during World War I. Following the war, war, First World War, he moved to the U.S. and embarked on a career in the oil industry, and it wasn't until the age of 44 that he turned to writing fiction. His breakthrough came with the publication of The Big Sleep in 1939, inc- introducing the iconic private detective Philip Marlowe. Chandler's writing was characterized by its gritty realism, sharp dialogue, and keen understanding of human nature. The success of The Big Sleep marked the beginning of a series of novels featuring Marlowe, including Farewell, My Lovely, 1940, and The Long Goodbye, 1953. Apart from his novels, Chandler also made significant contributions to Hollywood as a screenwriter. He adapted works for film, including James M. Kane, another uh, hard-boiled writer, Double Indemnity, 1944. His unique style and ability to capture the dark underbelly of society distinguished his screenplays. Chandler's influence on crime fiction is immeasurable. His impact extends beyond the genre as his works have been adapted into numerous films and TV series. His legacy endures as a pioneer in hardball detective literature, with his writing style continuing to inspire contemporary crime writers. Raymond Chandler passed away on March 26th, 1959 in, in La Jolla. I'm sure this, I don't know what, the, I kind of what you say in America, La Yola, La Jolla, La Jolla probably in Spanish, California, despite a relatively brief literary career. His contributions to the world of detective fiction have left an indelible mark. Indeed, that is true. The story I'll be waiting that we just heard uh, was published in 1939 in the Saturday Evening Post um, on October 14th. A hotel detective makes a bad error of judgment. That's a good logline, isn't it? So, um... A little bit more about Chandler from another source. Due to his straitened financial circumstances during the Great Depression, Chandler turned his latent writing talent earn a living teaching himself to write pulp fiction by studying the Perry Mason story formula of Earl Stanley Gardner. Uh, Chandler's first professional work was Blackmailers Don't Shoot, was published in Black Mask. We've heard much about Black Mask since we've been talking about Hard Boiled, the American pulp um, detective story magazine launched and supported the careers of most of the hard-boiled guys, you know. Uh, 39 was his uh, first novel with Philip Marlowe. Speaking in the first person, so, yeah, let's we'll talk about the features of, of hard-boiled later. In 1950, Chandler described in a letter to his English publisher, Hamish Hamilton, why he began reading pulp magazines and later wrote for them. And this is what Chandler says. Wandering up and down the Pacific coast in an automobile, I began to read pulp magazines because they were cheap enough to throw away and because I never had at any time any taste for the kind of thing which is known as women's magazines. 
this was the great days of Black Mask, if I may call them great days. Uh, this is Chandler saying, and it struck me that some of the writing was pretty forceful and honest, even though it had its crude aspect. I decided this might be a good way to try to learn to write fiction and get paid a small amount of money at the same time. I spent five months over an 18,000 word novelette and sold it for $180. After that, I never looked back, although I had a good many uneasy periods looking forward. That is a writer's sentence. I never looked back, although I had a good many looking forward. So it's a, a balanced sentence. That is that is a sentence of somebody who knows how to write. I, I Some of my favorite sentences actually come from Chandler. I've got on, um, I collect beautiful sentences. I've, I've got a, a database where I put beautiful sent what I think are beautiful sentences. I should say it was um I'll be watching was illustrated by um Hi Rubin and there's a fantastic uh, uh I've just looked up on the internet. Absolutely fantastic um picture of two tufts uh out outside uh you know lovely hard boiled and film noir of course is very closely related to hard boiled a lot of it takes place at night, not particularly. Anyway, I, before I got digressing, I digressed myself, diverted myself. What we've got is um, sentences, not from this, but just two lovely Chandler sentences, which shows his ability to really turn out nice English. So, under the thinning fog, the surf curled up and creamed almost without sound, like a thought trying to form itself on the edge of consciousness. Wow. Another one. She smelled the way the Taj Mahal looks by moonlight. Ain't that good? So, um, and you see, and the other thing that strikes you about Chandler is, I mean, these guys are very, they, they quip, don't they? They have these witty one-liners, which later on we see this in the action movies, Superman and all these people, all these action movies, and they all have these wit. That's, you know, they, I can't even think of any at the top of my head, but you know, you know what I mean. They make, when they're killing some bad guy, they make some comment. And that'll teach you to eat custard or, or whatever. You know, I made that one up on the spot. I don't know if you realize that. Uh, and um, so, yeah. And the other thing about Chandler is, and I haven't got any example. Let me see if I can find any in the story itself. Um, I've got a, um, a cover for it. Anyway, I've got to give you some notes. What what he does is he he introduces a character and he gives you a little one line or two line physical description of him and it fixes that fixes the character in your mind um so he sees the waiter in his blue uniform with the um silver piping on it boom you've got him uh so here you go he sat relaxed a short pale paunchy middle-aged man with long delicate fingers clasped on an elk's tooth on his watch chain there's a guy called uh, dwight swain taught uh, teaches how to write as well and he this was his genre. And he says, you know, one, two line description, almost like a motif. And if you can give them something like a bracelet or a an elk's chain, and it, it helps anchor the character because in a story, the reader may get lost between different characters and you go, um, her, uh, his tawny blonde hair, his unkempt blonde hair, boom, his uh, silver buckled shoes, boom. And you've got the picture. So he does this. This is a trick. This is not a trick, it's a technique, you know. Um so yeah, so so what he you know, and um let me see what he says about the red haired girl. She was curled up with her feet upon a Davenport which seemed to contain most of the cushions in the room. Clever. Cause it doesn't, does it? She was tucked among them carefully like a corsage in the florist's tissue paper. She didn't turn her head, she leaned there, one hand in a small fist on her peach coloured knee. She was wearing lounging pyjamas of heavy ribbed silk embroidered with black lotus buds. Yeah, great stuff, isn't it? Great stuff. I love it. I don't know about you, but I love it. I hope you do. My copy of the story usefully has some notes. Notes, it says. Goodman refers to musician Benny Goodman. On page um, one page 572, there are several contemporary cultural references. The Last Laugh is a 1924 movie starring Emile Jennings. Spring, Beautiful Spring, also known as Chimes of Spring, was a song written by Paul Link in 1903. The Bluebird was Morris Metalink's 1909 allegorical play, which became a movie in 1918. So I hope you were paying attention and now you've, now you've gone, aha, that's what he meant. But there we are, there we are.
in a review of this particular story, um, it talks about uh, the tale is marked by Chandler's adept portrayal of the seedy underbelly of society and his exploration of the moral ambiguity that often characterizes his, his protagonists. Um, so, noir genre or hard-boiled often takes place at night, hence noir, often filmed in black and white, but told in the first person. I've said this before. One of my, you know, that like, and, and you know, when you pastiche it, like Chinatown, which is a great movie, um, but made much later than the um, the glory days of Hard Boiled. There I was in Chinatown again, you know. There, and I talk about how Blade Runner, the, the 1980 version, the first version, starts out with Decker being this seedy private detective. I know he's a Blade Runner, but it's a equivalent, morally ambiguous, um, a life characterized by uh, all of these guys drink cigarettes. Moral ambiguity, they're not good men in many cases, or they are good men basically, but you have to dig a bit because they don't look like good men, they don't behave like good men, and you find the goodness in them, and I think that's one of the great things about the genre, that these guys, you're rooting for them because even though they're failed human beings uh, like we are ourselves, well, I speak for myself obviously, um, we find the goodness in them you know, and the strength and the morality is in them. And that is a great joy of this world weary as they are. Think of um, Rick in Casablanca. Not, not, it is a, it is a, it's a kind of hard boiled. Rick's a tough guy, isn't he? In Casablanca. He doesn't want to do the right thing, but he, he ends up doing the right thing uh, because that's the nature of it, you know, also spoken in slang. So instead of the um, highfalutin, uh, literary language of um, almost even Conan Doyle, really, and the kind of the genteel sleuths um, of the of the English tradition. Um, these guys speak street, and I guess that they they influence in modern detectives stories is um, immense, really, isn't it? Because they are morally ambiguous. They are street. They are in your face. They're not these occupado uh, or um, somebody said to me before. I'd, on the Blue Geranium, I must have been talking about Miss Marple. And they'd heard me say Miss Marble. I said Miss Marple. But, um, and they said, by the way, it is Miss Marble. And I said, no, it's not. It's Miss Marble and Hercules Parrot. Anyway, you're probably sick of me by now. So that's it. What a great story. Hard boiled. We've done a bit of hard boiled. We did um, Carol John Daly. We did, uh, we've done uh, Dashiell Hammett. We've done uh, now Raymond Chandler. I think we've visited Hard Boiled, and I think we're going to probably flip back to some genteel sleuths. Let me know which you prefer, to be honest. Uh, drop some comments on the on the on the reviews and stuff like that. Maybe you like both, like me. I like them both. Um, you can like them both. You can like apples and oranges. You don't have to um, uh, like just one. So if you liked it, I hope you did. And if you like Brendan Sullivan, remember remember that name, Brendan Sullivan. What a great narrator. Give him a round of applause. Drop some positive comments as well for Brendan so he can read them and um, realize that his talent is recognized. Okay, speak to you soon. In the spirit of recognizing everybody's talent, the music is The Black Cat by Aaron Kelly. Mm -hmm.